Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. I ask that you would turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of John, the 8th chapter, verses 31 through 38. That's the book of John, the 8th chapter, verses 31 through 38. And if you found the sacred scripture, would you please acknowledge it by just saying, praise his holy name. And we ask that you would stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. John 8, 31 through 38. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you said you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, but most importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. You may be seated. The passage that we're entering into here in John, verses 31 all the way to 59, speaks of a certain peace, a peace that comes from knowing the truth and being set free. This is coupled with the knowledge of your true parentage from a physical perspective as well as from a spiritual perspective. It asks the question, are we children of God or children of the devil? You know, everyone seeks freedom, especially here in the West. It seems that seeking freedom is one of our highest virtues. And this freedom is sought by all who consider themselves to be oppressed. But freedom in Christ Jesus is not the same as political or economic freedom. In fact, some of the most harshly oppressed people in the history of the world have found complete and lasting freedom in Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible tells us spiritually that no one is free. Jesus tells us if we seek freedom from him, which comes by the truth of his word, then the truth will set us free. 
There are three things that we're going to discover in our time together this morning. The truth will set us free if we abide in that truth. The truth will set us free if we no longer practice sin. And the truth will set us free if we hear from his Father. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth and the very meditations of my heart be found acceptable in your sight. For you are my God and my Redeemer, my Lord. Build us all up on every leaning side and feed us until we want no more. Let us experience the freedom that comes with full maturity in you. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen. This whole concept of the truth setting us free is built on the foundation that we will abide in the truth of God's word. Verses 31 to 32 says it this way. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now this opening salvo here, this opening clause seems harmless enough until it builds upon the fact that it deals with the verses that have come before it. There have been Jews that had believed in him. And at the end of our last passage last week in verse 30 of chapter 8, it says, and many had put their faith in him. We recognize that Jesus and his disciples viewed these new converts differently. They viewed them as uh, slaves of sin from different angles. You know, they had once an indifference to Jesus. We see that in later on in 34. Then they were children of the devil as you get down to 37. Then we see them as liars in verse 55. And then later on we see them as being part of a mob and really those who are attempting murder. They had what is known, what was known then and what is known now as a fickle faith. But they profess to have belief in Christ. You know, if we wisely observe what we've been through in the last eight chapters of John, we will see that this whole idea of having a fickle faith goes all the way back to John 2, 23, when Jesus says, Now he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Yeah, many believed in his name when they saw the miraculous signs and the miracles. But many of them turned out to have a fickle faith and a faith that was untrustworthy. And you can see even how Jesus reacts to them in the same passage in John 2, 24 through 25, when he says this, but Jesus on his part did not entrust themselves to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. 
You see, he knew how fickle that you and I can be. We knew, he knew how fragile sometimes our faith could be when it hasn't fully matured. He knew that even though sometimes faith is parallel when it comes to the fruit of signs, and even though signs in the Bible are denounced other places, Jesus knew that signs could foster an acceptable faith at times. Look at John chapter 10, verses 37 through 38. Jesus speaking here. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He makes a clear statement. If you still can't get with me, look at the works. We see that this theme kind of goes on from John 6, uh, 16 all the way to John 6, 66. We see back in John 6 and 60, many of the disciples do what? They turn away from the teaching of Jesus because they disapproved in the truth that he's teaching. It was a tough message of truth. And we're going to see a similar situation develop here. Some believed in Jesus, whether or not their faith was genuine cannot be determined as of yet. But what does Jesus do? He lays down what will separate spurious faith, true faith, from fickle faith, and from the faith of genuine disciples. And this is it. Look at it. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. It's all encapsulated in this verb here. Meno. Meno means to abide. It means to hold on to. It means to remain in. It means to continue in. It means to persevere. In short, this concept of perseverance really is a great mark of the true faith of real, genuine disciples. All believers abide, remain, hold on to, continue in, persevere in the teaching and the Word of God. Such a person obeys Jesus' words, seeks to understand Jesus' word better, and finds Jesus' word more precious and more compelling than they ever have before, and they do so precisely when there are outside forces that flatly oppose the word of God. So that means that in time of great turmoil, in time of great persecution, in time of great conflict, our strength should grow stronger, not weaker. These are believers who are going to continue in the teaching that comes both from the Father and from the Son. These are the ones that listen to the Word of God and they abide. Second John 9, everyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. 
Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Then we look at Hebrews 3, 14 through 15, and remember the word abide is the same word as hold. It's the same Greek word as meno. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Revelation 2. 25 through 26, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. You see, these Jews have professed faith in him. Jesus, understandably enough, understands the difference between genuine faith and fickle faith. He knows that genuine faith will preserve, it will hold tight to his teaching, and uh, genuine faith will have incredible, glorious consequences. And when you have such a faith, a genuine faith, you recognize that it will cost you everything. The freedom that comes with a genuine faith presumes that it is a faith that is purposeful, persistent, and in a permanent slavery to Christ Jesus. I think that's why Jesus is sketching such stark contrasts here. I think without fear of contradiction, you can see that Jesus is standing true to a pattern that we found elsewhere in Scripture. Jesus is never interested in multiplying converts if they are not genuine believers. Jesus is not interested in numbers. He's interested in genuineness. And therefore, he insists time and time again of forcing would-be disciples to stop a minute and count the cost. Look at Luke. Luke 9, 57 through 62. Just another example. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of God has nowhere to lay his head. Stop right there. He said, now before you get all excited, and think that this change that you make is going to be, and it will be incredibly beneficial to your life. You need to recognize that I will fulfill all of your needs materially and spiritually, but there will be trials and tribulations on the way. Even me, the son of man, I don't have a place to lay my head. Then it goes on in this passage. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, does Jesus have a problem with funerals? No. Jesus is saying, you have found life in me and you're following me. 
Your father has not found such life. Let the dead bury the dead. And then he goes on. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back. That is fit for the kingdom. You know, when you look back, that old fleshly nature seems to rise up and you start to desire those things that you have walked away from. Do you recognize as long as you are on this side of eternity, this fleshly body will continue to beckon for what it once received from sin? And that is always a battle. You cannot look back, but you must look forward. Look at Luke 14, 25 through 33, yet another example. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying, your love for those things that you cherish the most must look like hate when compared for your love for me. It goes on. Whatever does not bear his own cross and come to me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete him. Otherwise, when he lays a foundation and is not able to finish, all will begin to mock him and saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Then he gives another example, looking at warfare. Or oh, what king going out to encounter another king at war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes across with 20,000. And if not, while the other one is yet far off, <clears throat> he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Well, Pastor, how does a, the, fruit, the truth set us free? And if we are free, then why, why do so many Christians live their lives as though they're still in bondage? Well, I'm glad you asked. For one thing, it is because we rebel against our maker, Christ Jesus. We continually refuse to obey him because we're still clinging to our old lives. We hold on to the sins that bound us to Satan when Satan was our master. We haven't accepted fully our new nature, and we still live with one foot in our old fleshly nature, which is always drawn to sin. Paul tells us in Ephesians that we must what? Put off the old self with its deceit and corruption, and then what must we do? Put on the new self with its righteousness. 
We have to put off lying and put on truthfulness, have to put off stealing and put on useful work. We have to put off bitterness and rage and anger and put on kindness and compassion and forgiveness. We have been set free from the bondage of sin, but often we voluntarily put on the chains again because we love our old life so much. Why is it? Why is it that we do not realize that we have been crucified with Christ and now it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me? Why is it that we don't understand that now we are a new creature? Behold, the new has come, the old has passed away. This Christian life that we are called to lead requires us to go from death to the rising and the walking in the newness of life. This new life is characterized by the thoughts of the one who saved us. It's characterized by us peeling off the dead flesh that has been crucified with Christ. But if we continually think about ourselves and if we continually indulge our flesh in the sins that we enjoyed so much before, we have not been set free. You know what we're doing? We're essentially dragging around a dead corpse full of rottenness and death. And the only way to fully bury this corpse is by the power of the Spirit, who is the only source of strength that we have. We are to be strengthened by a new nature, a new nature that is continually feeding on the Word of God, feeding on prayer, obtaining power through the Holy Spirit that we might develop more and more desire to escape from the old life and not to return to it. When you and I realize that our new status is a lot like our old status, we were slaves to Satan, and now in Christ Jesus, we are slaves to Christ. But being a slave to Christ is the only true freedom that we will ever find in this life or the life to come. What does the Bible clearly say? Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you might obey its evil desires. Romans 6 and 12. But we see here in the passage that we're in this morning that the key in verse 32 is that Jesus makes us a promise. And what's the promise, Pastor? We will know the truth and the truth will set us free. That means that we have an obligation, you and I, to fiercely hold on to the teachings of Jesus because we recognize that the true teachings of Jesus establish in us and a genuine faith as well as it has the authenticating power to build up that faith in us. This is not just some intellectual assessment. This is a moral commitment. This is a moral commitment that will face the blowback of this evil world. Jesus says, this world cannot hate you, but it hates me, and it hates me because I confront it because of its evil. 
Until you have truly accepted the truth of God, this world doesn't hate you. But as soon as you completely embrace the truth of God, this world, well, Jesus says later on, they hated me, so they will hate you. We see here that the truth of God's word is an intimate connection with Jesus and his true disciples. They have to be united in this truth. You know, Judaism taught that the Torah was enough, that the study of the law made a man. Jesus says to us in John's gospel, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. You see, they were incapable of making the connection between the Word of God and acknowledging the author of the Word of God. Jesus later tells us in John 14 and 6, I am the truth and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This true freedom, my friends, is to be enjoyed by us who trust Jesus Christ. Because if we recognize that becoming true disciples of Christ is true enslavement to Christ, and true enslavement to Christ is true protection in Christ, there is no safer place to be on this planet than in the center of God's will. I don't care what the world is doing around you. We have to stay in the center of God's will. And there is protection, there is prosperity, there is provision in the center of God's will. Jesus offers another promise here. The truth will set you free if you no longer practice sin. Up to this point, there's still, the jury is still out on whether all these believers are true or false. I think the goal here in verse 33 is to settle that matter. I think we see here that John is including all the material on the nurture and the nature of faith from these fledgling believers. I don't think he's just trying to evangelize to the Jews and the others here. He's trying to make sure that they understand that faith in Jesus Christ gives them all of these benefits. I think both Jesus and John is trying to make them understand that there's a cost to this, that even in the offer of freedom, Jesus is making the assertion that these Jews are currently slaves to sin. And they don't consider themselves slaves to anything. Look what they said. They said, we are Abraham's descendants. We are Abraham's literal seed. Now, this is a dubious statement because it is unlikely that their objection means that the Jews have never been subject to political subjection to anyone. If that was their claim, it would have been totally absurd. 
There was scarcely a major power that you could find in the Bible that the Jews did not serve at one time. Egypt, Assyria, Babylonia, Greece, Rome, all of them held them in political captivity. Even though they had relative freedom, especially when it came to their religious independence under the Romans, but the Romans gave them that false impression of freedom, yet they really remained in service to Caesar. We see here that the Jews saw themselves as sons of the kingdom. And then we see in Mark 2, 17, these words. Jesus said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, the Jews were convinced that they as a whole needed no physician. They as a whole needed no freedom from slavery. They needed no liberation. That is why they asked this question. How is it that you said you will become free? I mean, when you look at this question, you, you look at the challenging, ugly tone in which it is presented. It's kind of like the follow-up question they're going to answer a couple of weeks from now when we get to John 8 and 53, when they ask Jesus this, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? You see, they are showing their unwillingness to abide, their unwillingness to hold on, their unwillingness to remain in the teaching of Jesus. They, they feel that they have an inherited privilege. They have a sense of superiority, of supremacy. They cannot acknowledge that they need the divine incarnate word that is standing before them. Jesus takes this opportunity to show what he means about freedom and slavery. He has to correct these opponents that their sense of privilege that depends on mere physical lineage to Abraham is truly nothing. He starts out with this really strong assertion. You've seen it time and time again from Jesus. Truly, truly, amen, amen, or I tell you the truth. Jesus is telling them, he's making it plain to them, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Literally, it says in the Greek, the one who does sin. Jesus is trying to prove to them that one is a slave to sin if they actively practice sin. What does practice do? Practice makes perfect, right? He's saying they're living that lifestyle. They're actively living that lifestyle. And Jesus is saying the ultimate bondage is not the enslavement to some political system or some economic system, but vicious slavery is a moral failure. It is why we rebel against God, the God that has made us. So what is this saying, Pastor? It's saying that the problem is just not Caesar and agreeing and following Caesar's rules 
and regulation, but the real problem is our shameful self-centeredness. You see, there's an evil, enslaving devotion that is inside each of us as a creature that we have created in ourselves at the expense of worshiping our own creator. We are self-centered and not God-centered. This claim does not just have bearing on the question of social justice or the pursuit of social justice. Jesus recognizes that that without the love of Christ is momentary and transient, that it takes a hard conversion to really want to deal with the spirit of what God wants to do for people. It takes true conversion. But we see here that Paul later on in Romans 6, explains to us that we're all slaves. We're either slaves to sin or we're slaves to righteousness. That we cannot free ourselves from this. But once we are free from the penalty and the power of sin through the cross of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, then we become a different kind of slave. We are a slave that is now in total peace and finds true freedom. I know it seems like a contradiction. The only true freedom in Christ comes to those who are his slaves. I know that we believe that slavery is degradation and hardship and inequality. But from a biblical perspective, the true freedom only is found as slaves of Christ who experience the joy, the peace, the products of true freedom that we will ever know in this life. Do you know that there's 124 references or occurrences in the New Testament to this word doulos, which means slave. Sometimes it's mistranslated to the word servant. It means slave because it means someone who belongs to another or a bond slave who has no ownership rights of his own. That's who we are. You see, a servant, a servant works for their wages and by virtue of that work, is owed something from their master. That is not Christian slavery. We have nothing. We bring nothing in our hands to offer to God to pay for his forgiveness. We are totally owned by the master who bought us with the son's blood on the cross. We are the total possession of him who has died for us. Romans 8 and 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit of Christ. That who is, he belongs to him. So a slave is really the only proper translation of doulos. Jesus says, if the son sets you free, you're free indeed. Paul says that through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. We need to recognize that we have been saved by the most high God. Look how Paul addresses this in Galatians 4, 1 through 17. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, 
but he is under guardians and managers until a date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elemental principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come in, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our heart, crying, Abba, Father. That means my father. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. You know, as heirs, we are partakers of the inheritance, that eternal, uh, eternal life that comes from all those who come to the Father. But here, we are told again that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Paul further explains this in Romans 6, 16 through 20. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to any one as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. Either sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of what? Teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm not speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members, stop, your members are your hand, your feet, your eyes, your mouth, your mind. Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now, here's a contrast, turn it around. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. Lastly, this morning, Jesus tells us that the truth will set us free if we have heard from his father. And in this case, he's talking about unbelieving Jews or their father. Look at uh, verses 35 and 36 for a second of John 8. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains. So if the son sets you free... You'll be free indeed. We see a progression here of this notion of slavery and changing over to the status of slaves. We see here that the Jews see themselves as sons of Abraham, but in reality, they are slaves to sin. And as sons of Abraham, they felt spiritually confident. They felt Self-assured, they felt no one could really strike at the root of that assurance because they were in the lineage of Abraham. 
Now, that kind of word when Jesus tells them that no slave has a permanent place in the family, that kind of makes them think. And then if you look at Matthew 3 and 9, and it says these words, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to make these stones rise up as children of Abraham. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road. Listen to me. When John is speaking here, whether Jesus is speaking here, a genuine son in this context is not the Christian. A genuine son in this context is Christ himself. We know this from the word Julios, that is speaking of Jesus Christ as the son. He's not speaking here as the children of God. So the picture that Jesus is trying to paint to these Jews and he's trying to paint to us, that the son belongs to the house forever. That means that a true son can never be anything else but a son. Once you're in Christ Jesus, no one can snatch you out of his hand. If you are genuine, you've been genuine from the beginning, and you will remain genuine. So if the Son, who is the Son of God, sets you free, then you are free indeed. No more chains binding you if the Son himself sets you free. He's saying that you're going to have inalienable rights now because of the freedom that comes from Christ. Romans 8 and 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Galatians 5 and 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. True freedom... And this is what we get mixed up. This is in our own mind. True freedom is not the liberty to do whatever you please. It's the liberty to do what you ought to do. You know, that's what got Adam and Eve in trouble. Think of, I mean, how simple is the choice? You can eat from every tree in this garden but this tree. But because of the way we see freedom, if I'm not freedom to do whatever I want to do, I'm not free. You know, you could have just thought that tree had guacamole on it or something. And maybe you wouldn't partake of it. But they couldn't help it. That's the way sin is. The deceitfulness of sin. Paul tells us later in Romans 228 through 29. A man is not a Jew merely outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. Nor man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from man, but from God. I think it's important for us to recognize here that it is evident those who are the children of God and those who are the children of the devil. And you can tell by their practice. Practice, again, is like a, 
peripateo, like walk. It's your lifestyle, right? <clears throat> Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 1 John 3 and 10. On one level here, you see these Jews are ecstatic to announce their descendancy from Abraham. On the other, they are still that fickle mob that cannot believe wholeheartedly in the teachings of Jesus because the teachings of Jesus clash with their own prejudices. It clashed with their own fundamental understanding and biases, and they call the word of God into question. We do not have the right to call the word of God into question. We are to trust it. That is why Jesus makes this statement when he says, my word has no room in you. And that's something you got to think of this morning. Does God's word have room in you? Does it have the ability to change your mind even when you disagree with it? Does it have the ability to soften your heart when the world and your own expectations have hardened your heart? Does it have the ability to overrule your desires? Does the word of God have room in you? Is it something just hanging on the outside? Is it something that sits in the back of your car window until Sunday, faded out and never read? For practical purposes, you've heard me for 15 years ask you to stand as we read the inerrant, infallible Word of God. Those words are interchangeable, interchangeable especially when we apply them to the Bible. What I'm trying to say to you is that those who accept the Word of God, those who accept everything that Scripture tells us, everything that Scripture promises us, everything that Scripture requires of us, everything that God says will please Him, we should, we should dutifully do. This word has theological significance and religious significance. It's a, an expression of our faith. It gives us a clear look at reality. It passes all the tests of veracity. This word cannot be denied, disregarded. It cannot be arbitrarily put aside. It must be embraced. And when our lives are not consistent with what the Word of God says, we must be willing to suck it up and change our lives. We cannot change His Word. You're going to have to make up your mind, guys, because it's going to get harder and harder, and it's going to be easier and easier to define who is with the Lord and who is not. 
And you want the whole world to know where you stand, regardless of the cost, knowing that the cost you're suffering is minimal because the true cost has been paid on the cross by Jesus Christ. That means, without exception, we must believe that this word is from God. And whatever changes, it must, uh, whatever changes, it must circumvent in our current belief system. We are required to be open, to be transparent, to be able to be molded in a different way because whether we have totally understood it or we're praying for God to give us wisdom, we trust him that everything he tells us and everything he does, he does for our good. Faith requires us to follow not what we see, but that that we believe. We walk by faith and not by sight. We trust the word implicitly, explicitly in all that it says and that it does. We recognize that we serve an honorable and true God and that if we will abide, hold, continue, remain in his word, we will be his true disciples and the truth will set us free. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, continue to build up this understanding in our hearts. Lord, if you need to break our hearts and mold them again, mold them and rebuild them around the true foundation of your word, Give us the ability to persevere, to stand the test, to recognize that your son has already told us in this world we will have trials and tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Let us not just hear that. Let us fully believe that. And let us be focused on the fact of the incredible blessings that you have for us, not only in this world, but in the world to come. Let us recognize that this is just a momentary affliction that does not compare to the greatness of the blessings for those who stay and those who truly love Christ Jesus. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen.